It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh no. Oh yes, but fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. Hardy's two for five dollar breakfast bake goodness into your morning. Choose a biscuit with sausage and egg, biscuit and gravy, or French toast dips. Any two, just five dollars. Hardy's goodness in the making. These items only. Price and participation may vary. Tax not included. Impact of influence: the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend, Matt Harris and Seton Tucker, as always, super grateful that you've been spending time with us over the last couple of years. We're still amazed by it, and we still love hearing feedback as we try to get better at this each and every time. How can they find us, Seton? You can find us on our Facebook page, which is Impact of Influence. I still want to say, I still always want to say Murdoch Family Murders, right. but it is Impact of Influence now. And our, our other podcast is the Wicked South podcast, so check that out. We do with Michael DeWitt. Uh, the Really, the final major piece in the Murdoch saga is the boat crash that killed Mallory Beach. And it appears that all parties have signed off on the settlement. And we're going to talk to Connor Cook's attorney in just a second. Uh, it was supposed to go to court like in August, right? I, I believe August 14th. 14th. But now that appears like it's not going to happen. There's a few you know, things that have to be signed and that sort of deal. But it looks like we're close. We're close. But there is still a pending lawsuit that Mark Tinsley has a grant against Parker, which is a civil conspiracy, civil outrage lawsuit. And that... That true. That that could get very interesting as well. And of course, there's still pending charges with cousin Eddie and Alec Murdoch about drugs and about where all the money go, that sort of thing. So that that all can continue to happen, and we will keep you up to date on that as well. And now with us, Joseph M. McCullough Jr., seasoned litigator, former prosecutor, over 40 years of experience. He is also the founder of. Palmetto Innocence, marshalling the assistance of volunteer lawyers in an effort to exonerate those wrongly convicted. And like every other player in the whole Murdoch thing, he went to USC Law School. Uh, Joe, hi, how are you? I'm great, Matt. I appreciate you saying I'm seasoned. There were some who would say I'm marinated. <laughs> well, and people might would probably recognize Joe to set this up a little bit. If you watch the trial... You saw the uh, gray fox back there. <laughs> the hair. We we received a lot of comments of who is the guy with the hair. That's Joe, and you probably he did all the talking, you know, all the the rounds on the court TV. He was on with me a couple times with Vinny and those sort of things. So, uh, and he's friendly with the attorneys involved in the the, the Murdoch case. So, uh, I learned stuff from Joe while we were down there. I did too. Before we get into the nitty gritty of what we're going to talk about today. Did you know your hair was going to be such a hit? Uh, not really, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I generally picked that seat because it, it, it was 
strategic uh, uh, because it allowed me the possibility of seeing the monitors that nobody was supposed to see. And one thing led to the other, and it, uh, it became a proprietary seat that the press enjoyed sitting around. And I was very happy to, to be a resource for um, the press corps in terms of what in the hell just happened is mm-hmm. kind of what we what we did all day. And my wife from time to time would send me a text message and say, for God's sakes, quit reacting because we can read your lips. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, it was quite, quite the experience. But no, I, I, I mean, I have hair. Uh, it's a tribute to my father being a beauty and barber supply salesman. So ah. growing up, I, I had good product, we say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought Donald Trump was the hair. So I'm glad to take that away from him. Yeah, you got that going for you. We were out with a couple of people last night, and we were like, "Joe, which one?" Like we started describing you, and once we got to the hair, like, "Oh yeah, I know that guy." Um, but yeah, Joe was very nice to share his thoughts uh, with the media as things were going on, and that was fantastic. Well, Matt, Matt, can yeah. I say this? Yeah. I, I, you know, you mentioned earlier in the in the intro that that I know and have relationships with with the lawyers on both sides of this case, mm-hmm. and, and actually some of the litigants, obviously. Um, and I tried throughout to be, I'd like to call it an honest broker of the process and my opinions. Um, but obviously, I have I, known these prosecutors. I've worked with some of them as, pro, as a prosecutor, which I am a former prosecutor. I've been law partners with Dick Harputlian. I've tried cases against him, criminal and civil cases. I've tried cases with him. So, I mean, I brought to the table, I thought, uh, a kind of an omniscience and an uh, interconnection with all and a relationship with all these people. So, you know, some days I would uh, go over and have coffee with the prosecution team. And in the evenings, I'd have a, a drink or dinner with the defense team. And throughout the day, I would be interacting with all of them and reflecting. And, and you know, it was a, a very interesting uh, busman's holiday for me and and i think a real opportunity uh for me to have the opportunity to give my opinion so hopefully that was helpful it was helpful and let's stay on that for just a a second when you were talking with both sides did you sense at any point that the stress levels went up were there situations where you're like this i can tell this guy or this side is on edge did you did you see that from these guys oh absolutely yeah. Constant. Um, but, you know, lawyers in, in preparing for a trial, you know, we're strung tighter than a bowstring <laughs> and um, things get brittle because of the pressure of that oncoming train. And you want to perform your best for your client, whether your client is the state of South Carolina or or, you know, an individual. Uh, and, and then it, it never helps uh, to add the layer of cameras and national and international attention as it as it turned out so i mean all of that plays on the emotions of the the litigants the lawyers the the witnesses and uh you know in this case in particular so yeah i i i would talk about the uh, people with these uh, folks about the rigors of the trial and and uh, as it dragged into the fourth week um, and people began to become despondent that the damn thing was never going to end. 
Um, yeah, you're absolutely correct. There were a lot of emotions and days that uh, it went one way for the prosecution. The next day it went the other way for the defense. And, of course, ruling by the uh, Judge Newman uh, dashed some hopes. But I have to say that I don't think the defense, they were not surprised by the results of, of many of their emotions and arguments. Well, let's, let's stay, since we're on that part of the thing, let's stay with the, the whole Murdoch thing for a moment. Did you find when you were saying that the defense had a good day that people would say, you know, you're in the bag for them, that sort of thing? Was there, was, did people give you uh, heat whenever you said that side had a good day? You know, I, I don't think I was in an echo chamber, but I don't recall being criticized for, for saying somebody had a good day, no matter who it was. Uh, the, the, pro, the defense crowd, the, the, apparently, I will say, Matt, Everybody, um, all the litigants were watching television uh, in the evenings, so they knew what uh, the commentators, uh, such as myself, were saying about the trial and about people's performances. Um, but you know, I didn't really care. I, I was, as a, again, trying to be an honest broker of my perceptions as a guy who's been a prosecutor, a trial lawyer, not just a paper lawyer. For almost well more than four and a half decades, what do you see? I'm in my 46th year, and I've tried hundreds, if not a thousand plus cases, and I think my instincts and my impressions were sound. And you know, I, <laughs> clearly, I'm not omniscient because I predicted a hung jury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I thought yeah. that too. What did you think was the biggest turning point in the trial? The worm turned substantially against the defense with the prosecution bringing to full closure the value of the kennel video, which placed Alec there uh, close in time, uh, a, a fact about which the prosecution had previously established that he had denied being present. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that created one hell of a, a dilemma for the, for the defense. Under normal circumstances, as everybody has said repeatedly, you just don't, you try not to put your defendant on the stand. That typically doesn't go well. I think there were dynamics uh, probably backstage on the defense team that that uh, not only did that video create a real problem that only Alec could answer, but I think it also may have had something to do with uh, Alec Murdoch's career as a lawyer and his uh, self-confidence, which may have been misplaced in hindsight. But I think he wanted to testify, believing genuinely that he could influence and persuade the jury in his direction with an explanation. But absent an explanation, it was going to be a hard result. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I've been talking about getting on the podcast for over a year now, I guess, and you've shared some great insight and emails and, and, and conversations. Uh, but we finally get you on because one of your cases has wrapped. Yes, we have the Mallory Beach boating crash death lawsuit. And there have been reports this week that there was an $18.5 million settlement. Joe, can you break down who receives what and how this came about? And by the way, we should mention Joe is Connor Cook's attorney. That is correct. Connor being the courageous young man who was not driving the boat uh, at the time of the accident, but was the gentleman, the young man whose 
jaw was broken in multiple places. He sustained a terrible gash wound to his face, knocked him out when he came to. There were people in the water screaming. There were people in the boat screaming. He had the presence of mind to find his cell phone, put a hand on his cheek to keep from bleeding out and to stumble up to the top of the bridge to find a cell signal and then talk to the 911 uh, person into, uh, you know, to their location. So, uh, I mean, that young man deserves kudos for courage and, and uh, composure in the worst of circumstances, knowing his childhood friend Mallory Beach was missing. So, um, it is correct that, that the Beach case and uh, there's a what's being described in the last day or so, a wrinkle in the resolution of the Alec Murdoch case. We can come back to that. But but on uh, Saturday, conversations coalesced with uh, the Parker's convenience store uh, platoon of lawyers. And uh, we have uh, had a very co- uh, a great mediator, Carl Falkins. Uh, and we all agreed Saturday afternoon to meet first thing Sunday morning in uh, Daniel Island to see if we could reach a, a common compromise. And, and after many hours, we were able to do so. Now, the rules of ethics say that I can't describe the process or I can't tell you about sawing the log, but I can tell you the result. And the result was a settlement of uh, about $18.5 million. Some smaller portion of that was to be paid by uh, the Murdoch Insurance Company. And because they were not present at the mediation. We've got some what I'll call nuances to to work out, and we've been discussing those for the last uh, two days. I'm very optimistic that that both the cases, Mr. Tinsley's case on behalf of the Beaches and on behalf of Miley Altman uh, and Morgan Dowdy, who he he represents the the estate and those two young ladies who were in the boat and uh, Patrick Carr. And I represent the the Cook uh, cousins, um, and and essentially, the, as has been reported, uh, about fifteen million dollars uh, is going to be paid to the Beach family to the estate. Uh, One million dollars uh, to be paid to Connor Cook for his injuries, only because it's a private matter, unless the. Uh, That's fine. The lawyers want to talk about it, but but yes, the uh, other everyone in the boat receives funds, and and I suspect it's all out in the public domain. But because I haven't had time to read the paper, because I've been on the phone <laughs> preparedly to to put a, a you know the final kiss on this uh, settlement, um, I haven't had time to read the papers. But uh, yeah. but the Parker's convenience part of this is settled completely, I believe. And and I think we'll work the the other um, one half million dollars out uh, here shortly. Parker's Insurance is paying that eighteen mil. That's correct. And the other is going to come from Alec Murdoch's insurance. Boat insurance. It, yeah, it's from his yeah his boat insurance policy. And and you know that uh, the the insurance company in uh, Mr. Murdoch's insurance company has. They had proffered those funds probably three years ago, 
it, it just was not didn't make logistical and legal sense to take that money at that time uh, but it did when we resolved matters with Parkers. So, you know, we'll get this other uh, part worked out, I hope, I believe, and, and put, a, put a bow on this thing and be done with it, much to the chagrin of the media and, and all the, uh, uh, I'm beginning to call them trolls, those people in, in the uh, social oh. posting sphere who, uh, who have said, horrible things about various people. And uh, I don't know what some of the lawyers involved in this who have made uh, careers out of promoting this case. uh, I don't know what the hell they're going to do for a second act. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about the rulings that kind of led up to what we thought was going to be a hearing in August. Judge Hall ruled that the change of venue, it it was going to stay in Hampton. And also that Parker's was going to be tied to Murdoch. I guess they wanted to separate. Do you think that these two rulings influenced uh, the settlement? Oh, I don't think there's any question. I mean, what we what we on the on the plaintiff side uh, saw was a, a kind of a frenzied uh, filing of motions. The venue motion and the severance motion were, were, were not only filed and denied, motions for reconsideration filed and denied, but then they took another, they, the Parker's uh, legal team, took another shot at, at filing essentially the same motions with very little new information, and those were summarily denied. So I think the failures of those motions were like dominoes falling and, and really pressed uh, the Parker's uh, legal team, perhaps, but more so the insurers, to really come to the table. Um, uh, I will also say that um, uh, I had filed a motion that uh, had not been heard. The schedule actually to be heard Monday of this week um, it was a motion in Lemony uh, to ask the judge to rule that the failure of SLED to not charge Parkers with a criminal offense of selling to underage people and, and not to sanction them uh, administratively um, was inadmissible at trial. If they had issued a ticket, that would have been inadmissible at trial. And uh, my argument about that in the motion, which is a matter of record and filed, um, was that Parker's had for the last year uh, kept beating the drum uh, with a mantra that the sled's inaction was exonerative, that it vindicated their sale. And that was never our position. That was our position was steadfast as announced in the pleadings and would have been the uh, the argument in, in the trial of the case. But uh, we were hopeful to have that hearing, uh, that heard. And, you know, I didn't get to uh, argue that, darn it. And, and <laughs> we, were, we were supposed to take uh, Alec Murdoch's deposition yesterday yeah. at, the, uh, at his correctional uh, residence. And we didn't get to do that either. And, and, you know, darn it, I was looking forward to that. What would be you would be trying to get out of Alec if you had been able to pull that off? Well, I think uh, certainly we would have wanted to talk about the child rearing uh, in his family and the uh, 
involvement of Paul in this boat accident. I mean, the, the cause of action against Alec Murdoch in this case that, that we believe or hope has just been settled was based upon the negligent entrustment of a boat to a son who had some history of, of connection with alcohol, if not abuse of alcohol, and and just, you know, the parental failure is what we alleged of, of allowing him free reign to consume alcohol. Uh, and so we would have we would have gotten into all of that and uh, probably have uh, questioned him on his knowledge of the uh, convenience store location and, and whether alcohol was obtained there by his son, Paul, and, and what the reputation of that store was in the community or in that uh, community, because that that store happens to be the, the closest Parkers to Chichesse where the, the boat ride began. But, you know, we'll just never have, well, I don't think we'll have that opportunity. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Mark Tinsley gave some quotes to ABC News 4. And in some of his quotes, he talks about Greg Parker's ego. And, you know, this, we know this has taken a long time for y'all to get this resolution. Do you think Greg Parker's ego played a part in why it's taken so long to reach an agreement? Well, I don't personally know Greg Parker. I've met him. We have uh, mutual friends uh, or friends in common, I will say. And I, I don't know that I would ascribe it to ego. I would ascribe it to a very obvious frustration that Greg Parker has with the state of the law in the area of dram shop. And, and I will say that uh, I am a lawyer who uh, I'm involved in representing plaintiffs, uh, as in this instance, in uh, all kinds of cases, uh, car wrecks and uh, uh, slips and falls and uh, all types of civil personal injury cases. And I have made a substantial amount of money off of dram shop cases as a plaintiff and enjoyed the state of the law. But I have to say on the, in my alter ego, uh, legal, uh, practice, I represent bars and restaurants. We really don't have bars in South Carolina. We only have restaurants that serve alcohol, mm-hmm. but I have represented, uh, 
a lot of restaurants uh, that I think were uh, sued uh, wrongly, uh, but insurance companies recognize the law is to a degree uh, skewed in favor of plaintiffs. And uh, the insurance companies, unfortunately, are leaving South Carolina because of this law. So I understand uh, Mr. Parker's frustration about the law and the challenge for him and for my other clients when I've got my defense hat on for for restaurants uh, in dram shop cases is whether there's any possibility of changing the law to make it to make it a fair fight. And I so I. I feel Greg Parker's pain. I think that frustration is what prevented resolution of this thing. And I'd love to talk to him about that frustration and about the law. I'll issue that open challenge to him to give me a call. <laughs> That's the, the joint and several liability law that if somebody involved is even 1%, they can be held responsible for 100% of Correct. The, okay. and, 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 well, it's, it's the fact, Matt, that, um, our law exempts or accepts, I guess is a better way to say, um, it takes out of uh, comparative negligence any uh, civil case that is based upon the service of alcohol. Okay. And and this it's it's hard to explain it, I guess, but but I will say that if you think of uh, owning a restaurant at which someone purchases one drink at one o'clock in the day, uh, then goes on to another couple of establishments and, and then really ties one on and um, uh, gets drunk at number two or number three, um, it is under this law feasible and, and it, it is trotted out almost daily in lawsuits across the state of South Carolina that everybody in the daisy chain gets sued. And it is conceivable that if a verdict is brought, uh, is found by a jury uh, against all three defendants and that first defendant who served only one drink and has, you know, uh, a more insurance than the other two, that's the target mm-hmm. for, for seeking your judgment satisfaction. So that's the, the unfairness that I think Mr. Parker's frustration arises from. And, and, you know, there are some ways to adjust the law that that don't, would not deprive uh, plaintiffs injured by drunk drivers or drunk boaters or whatever, uh, that would just make it a fairer fight, a more reasonable exercise in court, uh, and not tilt the table quite so much in the direction of, uh, of uh, you know, the Deep plaintiffs. Pockets. But in, in this case, uh, the uh, Paul Murdoch, as the evidence would have shown, uh, became drunk in almost entirely, if not entirely, on beer purchased by Paul Murdoch underage uh, through a little bit of, of uh, fakery. But, but it was our position that, that it could have been avoided by a more diligent effort by the clerk at the time. So... Um, this is not a, a multiple stop situation. Now, some comments have been made about, you know, the the two shots at the end of the evening that Paul required and that Connor accompanied uh, him in for. But I think that the testimony at trial would have been from Connor that uh, if he had not gone in with Paul, 
they would have all been standing on that dock for the rest of the night. And that, uh, you know, gosh, Paul was intent on having a nightcap, as they say. And I think that, that Connor recognized and, and would have testified that that Paul bought a round of uh, a shot for each of them or they split a shot and that he then knew that if he didn't reciprocate, they wouldn't get out of there. Mm -hmm. So he did that. But I would say that the experts were ready, as common sense would dictate, that after Paul had consumed a case of beer or more that day over the preceding hours, that that half a shot was a drop in the bucket. It didn't have anything to do, and that would have been our position at the trial, that it didn't affect Paul's intoxication level whatsoever, that that was a function of the, the beer purchased underage. We've seen all these documentaries. We've seen HBO, Netflix. How do you think the notoriety has impacted this case? Gosh, it's it's made uh, media stars out of some people. It's making some lawyers money as commentators, I reckon. Uh, <laughs> it it, it uh, has given my hair an outing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I have to say, I may have had more hair fall out over this case than I've benefited by it. It has brought to prominence uh, this uh, tort law issue that Mr. Parker is so frustrated about. It has brought to great notoriety uh, the Murdoch family, unfortunately for some and, and uh, appropriately for others. Um, and it's really cast a pall over Hampton and Colleton counties, I think, yeah. in a way that... that uh, they have financially benefited for, but I think they paid an emotional price with all the negative attention. And so the settlement is a really good thing because not only does it allow uh, Connor and Molly and their brand new two-month-old baby. Well, I was just about to, to ask you about congratulations. that. Congratulations. Yeah. To, to now begin to put their put all this behind them and, and kind of recede back into the fabric of, of Hampton County. Uh, without having to worry about this stuff every day. And I think it, it to some extent, it's a relief to the folks that live in Hampton and Colleton, uh, except the people that were getting ready to rent all their Airbnbs out for the trial that's now <laughs> not, not going to occur. But, True. but I think, you know, I was in France on a much deserved vacation. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife got a pitchfork out after me and said, we're, we're out of here. We're going to, you know, on take a vacation, took my family and, uh, met with one of the journalists in Paris, who is a Parisian, who was spent oh, six weeks sitting Arthur. sitting next to me. Arthur, yeah, um, he was awesome. So Arthur and I had drinks over there, and of course, you know, this case is famous over there. Well, do you um, think it impacted the amount of settlement in any way? Do you think they got more or less because of the notoriety? No, I really, I, I don't. I don't think that had much to do with the numbers. I think the the significance of the negligence that we alleged, we believe could have been easily, or not easily, but would have been laboriously proven, but nonetheless proven. And I think the, you know, the death of Mallory Beach, a terrible thing, the effect on the families and some of the other collateral issues, the uh, alleged improprieties of, of Alec at the time, the night of the boat accident and, you know, some other things, the failures of law enforcement, all of that brought a spotlight to the case internationally and, and certainly nationally. 
So, but I don't think that had a hell of a lot to do with the with the size of the settlement. Um, you, you, really don't. You mentioned uh, a Murdoch wrinkle earlier. What 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 is the wrinkle? Without getting into the gory details, um, the uh, insurance company that holds the insurance for the boat that was the boat insured and owned by Alec Murdoch and driven by Paul Murdoch. Um, was and thereby being the platform for the injury, uh, the company, my understanding had, uh, my recollection is that they had essentially offered, proffered that 500000 several years ago. When this mediation was put together at the last second for reasons of urgency, they were not able to be included. So we just got to work out a couple of fine details. Okay. Uh, but I think in, in spirit and in principle, the company has acknowledged their willingness to pay the money. We've just got to fine-tune the, the, the terms of accepting the, the funds. The most important thing is when you were in France, did you wear one of those little tiny Speedos? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I, I did not, Matt, and that's a horrible image for me uh, and, and, uh, and for your viewers if they know me. But uh, <laughs> But no, I, I will say we spent some days in, in Paris and watched the news and never saw any of the protests. Unfortunately, they were occurring seating right outside of, of Arthur's window oh, because wow. he, he happened to live and, and lives in that neighborhood that was a focal point of the, of the riots and sent wow. me a photograph of it. So uh, he had a front row seat for the riots. We never saw anything. And then we went on to Normandy to honor the... Oh the servicemen and uh, I did not think to take a speedo there. <laughs> well, speaking of images, I wanted to ask you before we let you go, if you have an opinion, we've seen some new images of Alec Murdoch logging into his prison tablet and they're all over the internet. And we've also heard a phone call between Alec and Buster. Do you have any opinions on whether you think this should be public information? You know, I- I knew Alec. I knew his father fondly and his grandfather. Every day I get out of bed and I'm either defending or suing or or assisting in the prosecution of some criminal uh, uh, criminally accused person or I'm defending them. So I have a certain sympathy for the Murdoch family and, and even for Alec Murdoch. So do I think that those kind of unflattering photographs of him should be news? No, I don't. And I do I think that phone calls by between a person incarcerated and the family, uh, I have never thought that those phone calls should be public, public matters, nor do I think they should be available to the prosecution. And, you know, prosecutors always subpoena the, well, they don't have to subpoena them. They just call around the corner and say, send me all the phone calls with the defendant and his mother and his brother and whoever. And we can see if there's anything in there we can use to beat him over the head with. I don't, don't have to think that's proper. So, you know, maybe the settlement of these cases, if we can finally get it done with that proverbial bow on them, will allow the Murdochs to reclaim some of their privacy and, and uh, some of their sanctity as well. Joe, appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, and I'm glad we finally got to connect on the podcast after talking all this time. You are 
uh, genuine fellow. Like we love chatting with you, man. Appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate it. And, and feel free to call me God, every time I pick up the newspaper, there is a <laughs> new and fascinating case out there. Oh yeah. Uh, we would love to have you on as one of our experts. That'd be awesome. Thank you. We appreciate yeah. it. Later, Joe. Happy to do it. See you guys. See you guys. Bye. All right, couple of a uh, few emails actually from Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com from Ruby. It is difficult for me to believe that every email except attorneys that Murdoch receives can be read by anyone. I just don't understand that. And you uh, talk more about the issue we just did with Joe. He's against that. She said, I wonder, can you write a letter to inmates and it also be available to the public, even though they are prisoners, seems invasive to me. Love your podcast. Want more. And join the new pod with DeWitt, which is the Wicked South podcast. Uh, and he, or Ruby, bought uh, DeWitt's book. So as far as we know, unless something changes, the Freedom of Information Act can get you all the things you need. Well, yeah, but actually the South Carolina Department of Corrections uh, issued a statement yesterday. And in that, they say these, these uh, images that are taken when you open your prison tablet are no longer considered public. Oh, that's right. You're, you're correct. I forgot about that part. I was thinking about the phone calls are still... They're still golden. fair game, which I, guess, I, I, I tend to agree with what and the, Joe said. And the emails, I think, are too, right? Because that's how we know that the people wrote letters to him about love. I believe he's still receiving love letters. Yeah. Uh, from Tammy, I'm Matt and Seton. Thanks for your informative episodes and your great guest. Money laundering episode really had my attention. No wonder such badness can go on so easily. Until then, if y'all interested, I've got another story to tell you. Ooh, so I'll get in touch with her and find out what the story is. Uh, and from Michael, finally. Good afternoon. I hope this email finds you both well. I listened to your podcast from the beginning, and I'm a fan of your work. Last Friday, I was listening to the trailer when I heard Seton mention something about the Gold Club slash Hilton Head. I had a good laugh with my wife because I reminded her that I worked at the club during the summer of 91. Parking cars, nothing else. <laughs> I was in between my first and second year of grad school when I decided to mooch a place to stay from a friend. Anyway, I ran out of money and was planning on returning to Columbia or North Augusta, his hometown, when my buddy suggested I get a job for two weeks. Parking cars at the Gold Club. Love your uh, new pod. And that's from the Wicked South podcast. Yes. We talked about the Gold Club. And so you have to check out those episodes that are available now wherever you get your favorite podcast. Uh, and again, feel free to reach out to us by that email I said, or our Facebook page, which is Impact of Influence. And listen to the Wicked South podcast, also a Facebook page for that, that we do with Michael DeWitt. We uh, crank out those weekly as well. And we'll talk soon, friend. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done 
And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.